0: Section number 5 of Heart, a Schoolboy's Journal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Heart, a Schoolboy's Journal, by Edmando de Amicis. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. November, Part 2. The Soldiers Tuesday, November 22nd His son had been a volunteer in the army when he died. This is the reason why the principal always goes to the Corso to see the soldiers pass when we come out of school. Yesterday, a regiment of infantry was passing, and 50 boys began to dance around the band, singing and beating time with the rulers on their bags and satchels. We were standing in a group on the sidewalk, watching them. Garone, squeezed into his clothes, which were too tight for him, was biting at a large piece of bread. Votini, the well-dressed boy, who always wears Florentine plush. Precossi, the son of the blacksmith with his father's jacket, the Calambrian, Morotorino. Grossi. With his red head, Franti, with his bold face, and Robetti, the son of the artillery captain, the boy who saved the child from the omnibus and who now walks on crutches. Franti burst into a derisive laugh in the face of a soldier who was limping. But all at once he felt a man's hand on his shoulder. He turned around. It was the principal. Take care, said the master to him. Jeering at a soldier when he is in the ranks, when he can neither avenge himself nor reply, is like insulting a man whose hands are tied. It is cowardly. Frenti disappeared. The soldiers were marching by fours all perspiring and covered with dust, and their guns were gleaming in the sun. The principal said, You ought to wish the soldiers well, boys. They are our defenders, who would go to be killed for our sakes. If a foreign army were to menace our country tomorrow, they are boys too. They are not many years older than you, and they too go to school. And they are poor and rich among them, just as there are among you. And they come from every part of Italy. See if you can recognize them by their faces. Sicilians are passing, and Sardinians, and Neapolitans, and Lombards. This is an old regiment, one of those who fought in 1848. They are not the same soldiers, but the flag is still the same. How many died for our country around the banner twenty years before you were born? Here it is, said Garone. And in fact, not far off, the flag was visible, advancing above the heads of the soldiers. Do one thing, my sons, said the headmaster. Make your scholars salute, with your hand to your brow, when the tricolor passes. The flag borne by an officer passed before us, all tattered and faded, and with the medals attached to the staff. We put our hands to our foreheads, all together. The officer looked at us with a smile and returned our salute with his hand. Bravo, boys, said someone behind us. We turned to look. It was an old man who wore in his buttonhole the blue ribbon of the Crimean campaign. A pensioned officer. Bravo! You have done a noble deed. In the meantime, the band of the regiment had made a turn at the end of the corso. Surrounded by a throng of boys and a hundred merry shouts, accompanied the blasts of the trumpets like a war song. Bravo! repeated the old officer. As he gazed upon us, he who respects the flag when he is little will know how to defend it when he is grown up. Nelly's protector wednesday november twenty third Nelly, too, poor little hunchback, was looking at the soldiers yesterday, but with an air as though he was thinking, oh, "I could never be a soldier." He is good. And he studies, but he is so puny and wan, and he breathes with difficulty. He always wears a long apron of shining black cloth. His mother is a little blonde woman who dresses in black. she always comes to get him at the end of school, so that he may not come out in the crowd with the others and She pets him at first. many of the boys ridiculed him and thumped him on the back with their bags. Because he is so unfortunate as to be a hunchback. But he never offered any resistance, nor said anything to his mother, in order not to give her the pain of knowing that her son was the laughing stock of his companions. They jeered at him, and he cried quietly, with his head laid against the bench. But one morning, Garrone jumped up and said, The first person who touches Nelly will get such a lick from me that he will spin round three times. Franti paid no attention to him. The blow was given, and from that time forth no one ever touched Nelly again. The master placed Garaone near him on the same bench. They have become friends. Nelly has grown very fond of Garaone. As soon as he enters the schoolroom, he looks to see if Garone is there. He never goes away without saying, Goodbye, Garone! And Garone does the same with him. When Nelly drops a pen or book under the bench, Garone stoops quickly to prevent his stooping and tiring himself and picks it up for him. Then he helps him to put his things in his bag and to twist himself into his coat. For this Nelly loves him, and gazes at him constantly. And when the master praises Garone, he is as pleased as though he had been praised himself. Nelly must at last have told his mother all about the ridicule of the early days, and what they made him suffer, and about the comrade who defended him, and how he had grown fond of the latter. For this is what happened this morning. The master had sent me to carry to the director, half an hour before the close of school, a program of the lesson. And while I was in the office, a small, blonde woman, dressed in black, came in. It was Nellie's mother. She asked, Signor director, is there a boy named Garone in the class with my son? Yes, replied the headmaster. Will you have the goodness to let him come here for a moment? I have a word to say to him. The principal called the porter and sent him to the school, and after a minute, Garone appeared in the threshold with his big, close-cropped head, in perfect amazement. No sooner did she catch sight of him than the woman flew to meet him, threw her arms around him, and kissed him on the head, saying, You are Garone, the friend of my little son, the protector of my poor child. It is you, my dear, brave boy. It is you. Then she searched hastily in all her pockets, and in her purse, and finding nothing, she detached a chain with a small cross from her neck, and put it on Garone's neck under his necktie, and said to him, Take it. Wear it in memory of me, my dear boy, in memory of Nelly's mother, who thinks and blesses you. The Head of the Class, Friday, November 25th, Garone Attracts the Love of All, De Rossi, the Admiration. De Rossi has taken the first medal. He will always be the first. This year, also no one can compete with him. All recognize his superiority in all points. He is first in arithmetic, in grammar, in composition, in drawing. He understands everything at a glance. He has a marvelous memory. He succeeds in everything without effort. It seems as though study were play to him. The teacher said to him yesterday, "'You have received great gifts from God.' Be careful not to squander them. And besides, he is tall and handsome, a great crown of golden curls. He is so nimble he can leap over a bench by resting one hand on it. And he already understands fencing. He is twelve years old and the son of a merchant. He is always dressed in blue, with gilt buttons. He is always lively, merry, Gracious to all, and helps us as much as he can in examinations. No one has ever dared to play a trick on him, or call him names. Nobis and Franti alone took askance at him. And Voltini darts envy from his eyes. But he does not even perceive it. All smile at him and take his hand or his arm when he goes about in his graceful way to collect the work. He gives away illustrated papers, drawings, everything that is given to him at home. He has made a little geographical chart of Columbia for the Columbrian lad. And he gives everything with a smile without paying any heed to it, like a grand gentleman. And without favorism for anyone. It is impossible not to envy him not to feel smaller than he in everything. Ah, I too envy him, like Voltini, and I feel a bitterness, almost a certain scorn for him. Sometimes, when I am striving to do my work at home and think that he has already finished his correctly, at the same moment and without fatigue. But then, when I return to school and behold him so handsome, So smiling and triumphant, and how frankly and confidently he replies to the Master's questions, and how courteous he is, and how the others all like him. Then all the bitterness, all scorn, departs from my heart, and I am ashamed of having felt that way. I should like to be always near him at such times." I should like to be able to do all of my school tasks with him. For his presence, his voice, inspire me with courage, with a will to work, with cheerfulness and pleasure. The teacher has given him the monthly story to copy, which will be read tomorrow. The Little Vedette of Lombardy He copied it this morning and was so much affected by that heroic deed that his face was all aflame, his eyes moist, and his lips trembling. I gazed at him. How handsome and noble he was! With what pleasure would I not have said frankly to his face, Dear Rossi, you are worth more than I in everything. You are a man in comparison with me. I respect you and admire you. The Little Vedette of Lombardy monthly story. Saturday, November 26th. In the year 1859, during the war for the liberation of Lombardy, a few days after the Battle of Sofranino and San Martino, won by the French and Italians over Austrians. On a beautiful morning in the month of June, A little band of cavalry of Saluzzo was proceeding at a slow pace along the retired path, in the direction of the enemy, and exploring the country attentively. The troop was commanded by an officer and a sergeant, and all were gazing into the distance ahead of them, with eyes fixed, and prepared at any moment to see the uniforms of the enemy's advance posts gleam white before them through the trees. In this order, they arrived at a rustic cabin, surrounded by ash trees, in front of which stood a solitary boy, about twelve years old, who was removing the bark from a small branch with a knife in order to make himself a stick. From one window of the little house floated a large tri colored flag. There was no one inside. The peasants had fled after hanging out the flag for fear of the Austrians. As soon as the lad saw the cavalry, he flung aside his stick and raised his cap. He was a handsome boy with a bold face, large blue eyes, and long golden hair. He was in his shirt sleeves, and his breast was bare. "'What are you doing here?' the officer asked him, reining in his horse." Why did you not flee with your family? I have no family, replied the boy. I am a foundling. I do a little work for everybody. I stayed here to see the war. Have you seen any Austrians pass? No. Not for these three days. The officer paused a while in thought. Then he leaped from his horse, leaving his soldiers there, with their faces turned towards the foe. He entered the house and mounted to the roof. The house was low. From the roof only a small tract of country was visible. "'It will be necessary to climb the trees,' said the officer and descended. Just in front of the garden plot rose a very lofty and slender ash tree, which was rocking its crest in the sky. The officer stood thinking a moment, gazing now at the tree. "'and again at the soldiers. "'Then all of a sudden he asked the lad, "'Is your sight good, you monkey?' "'Mine,' replied the boy, "'I can spy a sparrow a mile away. "'Are you good for a climb to the top of this tree?' "'To the top of this tree. "'I'll be up there in half a minute. "'And will you be able to tell me what you see up there?' if there are Austrian soldiers in that direction, clouds of dust, gleaming guns, horses? Certainly I shall. What do you ask for this service? What do I ask? Said the lad, smiling. Nothing. A fine thing indeed. Now if it were for the Germans, I wouldn't do it on any terms. But for our men, I am a Lombard. Good. Then up with you. Wait a minute until I take off my shoes. He pulled off his shoes, tightened the girth of his trousers, flung his cap on the grass, and clasped the trunk of the ash. Take care now, exclaimed the officer, making a movement to hold him back as though seized with a sudden terror. The boy turned to look at him with his handsome blue eyes, as though to question him. "'No matter,' said the officer. "'Up with you.' Up went the lad like a cat. "'Keep watch ahead,' shouted the officer to the soldiers. In a few moments the boy was at the top of the tree, twined around the trunk, with his legs among the leaves, but his body displayed to view and the sun beating down on his blonde head, which seemed like gold. The officer could hardly see him. So small did he seem. Look straight ahead and far away, shouted the officer. The lad, in order to see better, removed his right hand from the tree and shaded his eyes with it. What do you see? asked the officer. The boy bent his head toward him in making a speaking trumpet of his hand, replied, Two men, on horseback, on the white road. At what distance from here? Half a mile. Are they moving? They are standing still. What else do you see? asked the officer, after a momentary silence. Look to the right. The boy looked to the right. Then he said, Near the cemetery, among the trees, there is something glittering. It seems to be bayonets. Do you see men? No. They must be hidden in the grain. At that moment, the sharp whiz of a bullet passed high up in the air and died away in the distance behind the house. Come down, my lad, shouted the officer. They have seen you. I don't want anything more. Come down. I am not afraid, replied the boy. Come down, repeated the officer. What else do you see to the left? To the left? Yes, to the left. The lad turned his head to the left. At that moment, another whistle, more acute and lower than the first, cut the air. The boy was startled. Deuce take them, he exclaimed. They actually are aiming at me. The bullet had passed a short distance from him. Down, shouted the officer angrily and commandingly. I'll come down presently, replied the boy. But the tree shelters me. Don't fear. You want to know what there is on the left? Yes, on the left, answered the officer. But come down. On the left, shouted the lad turning his body in that direction. "'Yonder! Where there is a chapel! I think I see!' A third fierce whistle passed through the air, and almost at the same instant the boy was seen to descend, catching for a moment at the trunk and branches, and then falling headlong with arms outspread. "'Curse them!' exclaimed the officer, running up. The boy landed on the ground, upon his back, and lay there with arms open and motionless. A stream of blood flowed from his left side. The sergeant and two soldiers leapt from their horses. The officer bent over and opened his shirt. The ball had entered his left lung. He is dead, exclaimed the officer. No, he still lives, replied the sergeant. Ah, poor boy, brave boy cried the officer. Courage! Courage! But while he was saying courage, he was pressing his handkerchief on the wound. The boy rolled his eyes wildly and dropped his head back. He was dead. The officer turned pale and stood for a moment, gazing at him. He laid him down carefully on his cloak upon the grass, then rose and stood looking at him. The sergeant and two soldiers also stood motionless, gazing upon him. The rest were facing the direction of the enemy. Poor boy, repeated the officer. Poor brave boy. He approached the house, removed the tricolor from the window, and spread it like a shroud over the little dead boy, leaving his face uncovered. The sergeant collected the dead boy's shoes, his cap, his little stick, and his knife, and placed them beside him. They stood for a few moments, longer in silence. Then the officer turned to the sergeant and said to him, We will send the ambulance for him. He died as a soldier. The soldiers shall bury him. Having said this, he threw a kiss to the dead boy and shouted, To horse! All sprang into the saddle the troop drew together and resumed its road. And a few hours later, the little dead boy received the honors of war. At sunset, the whole line of the Italian advance posts marched forward toward the foe. And along the same road, which had been traversed in the morning by the detachment of cavalry, there, processed in two files, a heavy battalion of sharpshooters, Who a few days before had valiantly watered the hill of San Martino with blood. The news of the boy's death had already spread along the soldiers before they had left the encampment. The path, flanked by a rivulet, ran a few paces distant from the house. When the first officers of the battalion caught sight of the little boy stretched at the foot of the ash tree and covered with the tricolor banner, they made the salute to it with their swords, and one of them bent over the bank of the streamlet, which was covered with flowers at that spot, and plucked a couple of blossoms and threw them on it. Then all the sharpshooters, as they passed, plucked flowers and threw them on the body. In a few minutes, the boy was covered with flowers, and officers and soldiers all saluted him as they passed by. Bravo, little lambard! farewell my lad i salute thee godlocks Hurrah glory farewell one officer tossed him his medal for valour another went and kissed his brow and flowers continued to rain down on his bare feet on his blood-stained breast on his golden head and there he lay asleep on the grass enveloped in his flag with a white and almost smiling face, as though he heard the salutes, and was glad that he had given his life for his Lombardy. The Poor. Tuesday, November ninth. To give one's life for one's country, as the Lombard boy did, is a great virtue. But you must not neglect the lesser virtues, my son. This morning as you walked in front of me, when we were returning from school, you passed near a poor woman who was holding between her knees a thin, pale child, and who asked alms of you. You looked at her and gave her nothing, and yet you had some coppers in your pocket. Listen, my son, do not accustom yourself to pass carelessly by poverty, which stretches out its hand to you, and far less before a mother who asks a copper for her child. Reflect that the child may be hungry. Think of the agony of that poor woman. Picture to yourself the sob of despair of your mother. If she were some day forced to say, Enrico, I cannot give you even bread today. When I give a soldo to a beggar and he says to me, God preserve your health, and the health of all belonging to you. You cannot understand the sweetness which these words produce in my heart, the gratitude that I feel for that poor man. It seems to me that such a good wish must surely keep one in good health for a long time. And I return home content and think, Oh, that poor man has returned to me very much more than I gave him. Well, cause me sometimes to hear that good wish merited by you. Draw a sordo from your little purse now and then, and let it fall into the hand of a blind man without means of subsistence. Of a mother without bread, of a child without a mother. The poor love the alms of boys because it does not humiliate them, and because boys, who stand in need of everything, resemble themselves. You see that there are always poor people around the schoolhouses. The alms of a man is an act of charity, but that of a child is at one and the same time an act of charity, and a caress. Do you understand? It is as though a sordo and a flower fell from your hand together. Reflect that you lack nothing, and that they lack everything. That while you aspire to be happy, they are content simply with not dying. Reflect that it is a horror, in the mists of so many palaces, among the streets thronged with carriages, and children clad in velvet. That there should be women and children who have nothing to eat to have nothing to eat. Oh, God. Boys like you, as good as you, as intelligent as you, who, in the midst of a great city, have nothing to eat, like wild beasts lost in a desert. Oh, never again, Enrico, pass a mother who's begging without placing a soldo in her hand. Signed, Your Mother. End of section five, read by Julina Goodell, Fairfax, Virginia.